It's Dr. Seuss Podcast. This is podcast number 132 with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, OBGYN, home birth specialist. Uh, <laughs> Extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, unique. I'm unique, that's for sure. <laughs> that's for and sure. my protege and sidekick. Bliss. <laughs> Why was that look? The blisterious one? You are the blisterious one, or you're, or you're my uh, blister. Blister. Your blister is my favorite Depends one. Depends on your mood. Yes, and for, well, we, we 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 sort of stared away right through all the music, but let's get through the business here. <laughs> you can find us on iTunes. You can find us at drstewspodcast.com. You can like us on Facebook, share us, do all that stuff. You can email me at askdrstew at gmail dot com, or you can find me on my website at at birthinginstincts.com. You can find Bliss at. Uh, bliss at birthingbliss.com. And your website? Birthingbliss.com. There you go. And right. uh, Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. Yeah, and Bliss, you're doing, um, you, uh, how's that, you, mm-hmm. new, your new venture with your with Hayes? I think you're doing, um, Yeah. Uh, your birth, you're, you're doing birth classes, but they're mm-hmm. unique birth classes. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about them? The Innate Journey um, is what we called it. And... Um, We wanted to do something beyond the normal uh, childbirth class, including uh, intimacy for your relationships and how sexuality and uh, how sexuality relates to pregnancy and um, and delivery. And we feel like, you know, that first year after delivery is one of the hardest for relationships. So helping um, avoid some of the pitfalls in pregnancy and postpartum period for the couples was a big part of of what we wanted to do. And um, Hayes and I are both very spiritual women. So we integrate, um, you know, ritual, like having having an altar and having intentions, um, doing a lot of meditation. Um, So yeah, it was, it's been a great series. It just ended. Um, we had to put it on pause because, as you know, I had a loss in my family. Yes. If you want to tell us a little about that, yeah. because I think uh, I think uh, people ought to know about this heroic person. Yeah. Um, so Claire Wineland um, was a uh, young woman who was my niece um, who had cystic fibrosis. She was born with it um, and, uh, and has been in and out of the hospital um, her entire life, obviously. Many, many surgeries. We spent a lot of time when she was growing up, spending time with her in the hospital. Um, but she had an incident when she, she's always been just a fantastic, funny, vivacious she's young girl. She's been a powerful force. Yeah. Yes. But when she was 13, she had an incident where she had a near-death experience, was in a coma for um, 10 days. And when she came out of that, uh, started a nonprofit organization and became a speaker, did TED Talks and um, started to become very known um, on a YouTuber and um, it's interesting since her passing. I mean, I knew that people knew her, but the degree to which she's known around the world um, has been overwhelming um, to witness in a beautiful way. Yes. In a a really beautiful way because that was her mission. Her mission was to get her message out, and it's actually one of my missions as well was to get her message out. You know, there was a point in time that I actually thought about having that be my full-time job was to support Claire's um, mission. So, um, Well, she had a foundation, didn't she? Mm-hmm. Claire's P- Place Foundation and, and um, her supporters and family are saying that if you are inspired by Claire's mission, you can definitely donate to the Claire's Place Foundation, which supports um, families uh, that have cystic fibrosis with all kinds of different, uh, different needs. And, and, what, that, and that foundation's going to keep growing. They're going to keep it going Good. in her honor. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, a lot. It's the number one genetic disease in the world, cystic fibrosis. And so a lot of that money goes to, the, uh, in regards to cystic fibrosis, goes to trying to find a cure. And what happens is there's not a lot of support for the families who spend lots and lots of time in the hospital and have to um, maybe have their jobs suffer and, you know, need need support. They also did things like um, they helped a woman who had cystic fibrosis who was homeless. Um, they helped with the funeral. They helped with travel for, for families so that these children could actually enjoy life, which was a big part of what Claire loved to do. Yeah, so. yeah I was fortunate enough to spend a, a few evenings with her over the years. And, oh, at yeah. her um, 
at her one of the fundraisers. One of the fundraisers, yeah, yeah the, poker the, poker, the poker fundraiser. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She um, was a really special person. So it's a big loss for for me, obviously, but for the world. I how really how do people find uh, find her YouTube videos? Oh man, just search Claire Wineland, and there's Claire so is C L A I R E. Uh huh. Okay. Wineland, like it sounds, wine, and then land. Okay. Which used to be my last name. I knew that. <laughs> do people know that? I don't know if yeah. our if our listeners know that. I was previously Heather Wineland, and uh, because I'm a funky hippie type chick, I changed my name at forty. And that's yeah. a whole other story. Actually, 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 she's in the witness protection program. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. Okay. That's not true. <laughs> Heather Wineland is wanted in 37 countries. <laughs> but my brother, um, it's his daughter, and his name is John Wineland, and he's also um, becoming pretty well known as well on his, in his own right. He's an intimacy expert and is writing his first book. So, um, yeah. Good. That's our family. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's that's it. You know, and I, and like since we're talking about losses, I'll just share briefly that, um, you know, I've been practicing uh, at four years of, of medical school and four years of residency, and then I've been in practice now for thirty-two years. So that's forty years I've been practicing in medicine or in, in education, and, and and never had lost a um, a baby in labor before. Really? Yeah. And we had our first interpartum demise. Yeah. Yeah. I've had plenty of stillbirths. I've had babies that have died. I've had, you know, neonatal or perinatal deaths, um, that sort of thing. But I've never had a, a baby that, that lost in labor. And this was a delivery that was doing great. And you know, suddenly it just turned sour. And with and before, you know, we called the paramedics and got the baby out and worked on that baby for over half an hour between the birth center and the ambulance and the hospital and it never had a heartbeat and um it was a, it's been a very uh, difficult thing for the obviously for the family who are wonderful wonderful people who have been unbelievably supportive of everybody on the team and uh you know they're well grounded i mean they're really beautiful people downside is that the husband is a san jose sharks fan so he has that going against him, but other than that, and, I've, and, I, and we're going to be going to some hockey games together. We've, we've grown obviously very close, mm. um, but it, it is something that you know I never thought I would have to deal with. Because after practicing for thirty-four years, you just don't expect. You think you've seen everything, yeah, and then you haven't, yeah. And uh, so we had a little ceremony for her last weekend in Santa Barbara. We went mm. up and we threw flowers into the ocean, and that's beautiful. Nice, said a few words and. And it was nice, and then everybody drank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Grief is, you know, grief is a really interesting thing. I mean, this is the closest I've ever, I've ever been to someone who died, and um, someone, someone that close to you who died. Yeah, yeah. someone that close right. to me. But in terms of professionally, you know, my mentors, as midwife said, you know, you you pretty much can expect every six hundred babies that there might be a loss. So. I don't know where that statistic came from from them, but you know it's something that when we learn about midwifery, that's part of what we understand is that there will be losses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and some of them are you know are easier to take than others. I mean, they're all horrible, but but this one was really particularly hard for me simply because we were all there and we a baby was fine and then it wasn't. Yeah. And uh, it turned out that it was a occultly prolapsed cord, and that no one could have you know couldn't have foreseen didn't know and uh, what was the first word you said occultly prolapsed cord. what does that mean it means it was prolapsed but it wasn't out you couldn't feel it it was just sort of stuck huh. down low it was presenting but it wasn't palpable and it wasn't a prolapsed cord a true prolapsed cord it's like when you can see cord it falls out of the vagina yeah, that's a you different can thing see it. yeah but ultimately that's that's the only thing we can determine that was abnormal so yeah um right anyway so grief is, uh, is something that we all must deal with, and in in, in our lives, much time, too much too much grief is actually sterilized. We, we we've sort of removed death from our lives. We you know yeah. old people generally die now, and, and well, hospice is bringing it back now because we're bringing people back to passing away at home. But when young people die, like Claire, or like Madeline, um, mm. um, this is the hardest thing. Uh, this is much harder. I think no one should watch their children pass away. Yeah. 
Grief is a shit show, as I've been saying. Right. Now, on that happy note, I do have a question for you. So, yeah, well, we'll hug each other and we'll get, we, you know, we get through it. And, you and have, I think you're right. Support think, system is so important. I think we do need to talk about it so that it becomes, you know, something that people know. You, j- you just have to go through the process and it's messy and sometimes you're laughing and you're having fun and then it hits you again. And, it, and that's all just part of it. And then we hug each other and have a drink and celebrate in the ways that we celebrate and we keep living yep yeah yep okay wisdom why okay so here's a question (laughs) somebody asked me the other day uh a a client asked me this this is what makes a baby take its first breath um what makes a baby Mm -hmm. are you going to answer that or do you want me to answer well i wanted you to see if you know because i always presumed i knew but i really didn't know so i actually looked it up but oh well i've i've been told that um once they hit oxygen that that they actually take their first breath so it's a is it pressure it's well i I heard it was temperature oh yeah the temperature change but i think it could be temperature change pressure change Mm -hmm. um it's probably temperature because you know um if it's just if it's just when they hit oxygen um I'm not sure how that would work. Air. You know, air, I mean, yeah. 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 I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know the chemistry at yeah. all. But what did you find out? I f- it, said, it said temperature and pressure change. That's what it said. Yeah, pressure makes sense, right? I guess the air- they, they're suddenly they're not being squished anymore, and they're suddenly they're, they're now out, and it's a little cold, and they probably go, <gasps> uh-huh. <laughs> Well, the air outside, right, is, is, uh, has more pressure than in, inside of our body, wouldn't you say? You mean barometric pressure? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if that's what they meant. Yeah. Didn't really clarify that. I don't know. I anybody knows, um, study this. anybody knows, send us a, send me a note at info at birthinginstincts.com. No, that's the wrong email. Stew at gmail.com. Stew at gmail.com. I was just curious. You know, it's a question. It's one of those things that just happens and we wonder, like, we no one ever thinks about, well, why? I mean, the, mir- the miraculous things that happen and that occur after the baby takes its first breath are, are, are to uh, use a pun, breathtaking. Um, changes that go on inside a baby. Pretty cool. I mean, I really believe as many scientific advances as we have had, um, we're never going to be able to fully understand all of the intricacies of the design. I mean, it's just, it's, it's beyond. That's what makes it, Yeah. you know? what it is but then you also wonder so then why don't babies sometimes take a breath what is it that that makes them not take a breath and then you have to figure try to figure that out too Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh okay next topic (laughs) let's talk vaginas for a second all right (laughs) one of our favorite topics (laughs) at least one of us all right um i just got this because uh it's a healthcare warning that was sent out by the fda and uh again not necessarily a big fan of the fda i think they're process things too slowly and stuff Mm -hmm. but this is one where i've always been skeptical of it anyway and so when something confirms what i believed in the first place it sort of i I tend to believe it you know it's what i always say if it if tells you what if common sense would agree with what the study shows then it's probably true and if it defies common sense it's probably false yeah yeah keep going i'm looking for something that i want to share with you oh okay. okay all right so anyway um vaginal rejuvenation Oh, I thought you were going to save that one if, to the end. If we no, had I thought we'd get it done because <laughs> we're, like, we're going to get stuck on the other one. Let's so. talk about vaginas. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, we needed, to, we needed to lighten it up a little bit. <laughs> All right. Vaginas so, are a light topic. Vaginal rejuvenation procedures are touted as a cure for incontinence, a painful sex for older women, and, but they can actually lead to serious adverse events, including vaginal burns, scarring, and even more pain during sex. Okay. <laughs> So it would be very unfortunate if you had more than you started the mo- with. The most common one is called the Mona Lisa, and people may have heard of the Mona Lisa. I don't know if they've heard of it or not. But I just want people to be sure that if they're you know, getting of that age, and most of my listeners are probably not there yet. I think most of our listeners are in reproductive age, but, but sooner or later we'll all be over 50, and you may or may not have issues with pain with, with intercourse or vaginal dryness. And there's a lot of literature out there, a lot of advertisements and magazine stuff that says this is a, uh, a wonder drug. It's a wonder thing. It's going to solve all your problems, you know, that. And, you know, you get vaginal rejuvenation, you'll have a million dollars in your bank account the next day. You'll win the lottery. And, 
and you'll have great sex. So, it, uh, um, is I, it for pain or is it for visual? Like, no, it's for it's for dis- it's not for visual. Okay, it's it's a device that goes in the vagina and uses either radio frequency or laser uh, frequency to uh, basically superheat. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing which then causes restriction and contraction. Some people can say it, it's helpful for women who say that, you know, their vagina got stretched out mm-hmm. from childbirth and they're not having the same pleasure or their partner is having the same pleasure because things aren't as tight as they used to be. Mm-hmm. It can tighten up the vagina. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. And many people are using it for that as well. All right. Um, but I'm just one, I do, I'm not going to elaborate on it because I don't know anything. I'm just saying that before people look into that, or if you have relatives or friends that might be considering it, please, please, please take a look at it. Because doctors, a lot of doctors are, are being being um, uh, influenced by the um, device companies who come to their office, they wine and dine them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tell you how much money you can make if you just buy this thing for $100,000 and if you charge this much and you do this many things, and doctors often are looking for alternative sources of revenue, and they think, well, you know, I'll, yeah, it sounds like a good deal, and I've heard about it, so I'm going to buy one of these things. And then they start pushing it on people just because they have one now. And uh, it may or may not be a great thing. And I just remember once when I, I in my practice, I, I went and took a liposuction course. Yeah. Did I tell you the story already? Well, yeah. No, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I did a, I took the course. It was like 10 grand to take the course. And I took the course and I did a couple cases with the, with the professor. And then I did a couple cases on my own. And then I realized, you know what? I'm not as good at this as a guy that does this all the time. So I'm not going to do that. So that's sort of the way I feel about these devices is that, you know, there may be people that are really good at it, but just to, if every doctor has one and, and, uh, you know, it may not require any skill. Maybe it requires you just put it in and you turn it on and you take it out and it's, and it's, and it's, it's mindless, but does it really work? Does it really help? And and are you being ethical when you're when you have a financial interest in it and, and pushing it on your clients? Yeah. So. Well, I I just want to speak for a second yes. about becoming older, right? Um, because I am perimenopausal, right? Is that what I am? Peri. I would uh, say pre, but is it perimenopausal? Well, yeah. Before you're menopausal. Perimenopausal is the period of time where you're going through changes, like skipping a period or maybe your periods are getting closer together, that sort of thing. So that's me. Premenopausal just means anybody who's before they start menopause. (laughs) So I'm perimenopausal. Um, There's a a woman, her name is Christine Northrup. Sure, everybody knows her. Yeah, everybody knows her. Um, She's got some really interesting perspectives on women who are menopausal. Um, Tantra actually has some really interesting perspectives on this whole your vagina is stretched out. Uh, so looking into Tantra and sexuality is a really great, great thing to just understand the benefits of where we are sexually at this point in our lives. Um, and I really believe that keeping our sex life um, vital um, really helps with a lot of the things that women are complaining about. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's part of what I was talking about in our class. So... Um, I, I, it goes back to the same thing that we talk about with birth, though. It's like the more that we start to interfere with it, the more we start to have problems rather than living a healthy lifestyle ongoingly. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, there are, there are women that, that's, that, that say that this is a great thing. And, of course, those are the people you're going to see on the ads and other things like that. But what the FDA is warning is, is that there are women who you may not hear from because they're not going to be promoted by the companies who've had serious side effects and consequences from this or, or uh, and have not seen any improvement and actually gotten worse. Yeah. And they just want you to know that, again, fully informed. It's, it's certainly, should, I, I don't want the government to come in and say that you can or cannot do this. Right. I just want people to have information. Yeah. That's the goal. That's the goal of this whole podcast is to really, you know. Inform. Try to give people alternative viewpoints to things because, you know, they get enough of one viewpoint just from the general medical world. And so if they listen to the Dr. Stu's podcast, they often get a different viewpoint. <laughs> so I wanted, I, I pulled up this little meme that I put up the other day because you were talking about talking about vaginas. You're posting a lot lately. I don't know if I'm yeah. posting a lot lately. But it says, um, so it's like someone talking to themselves basically. And so me says, don't be weird at this social event. And then the other me says, give strangers unnecessary information about placenta, cervixes, and meconium. <laughs> 
Isn't that us? Don't we go and we talk about things that are like? Well, totally I try not to, but everybody. But you know, once they find out what you do, they immediately they start asking you questions, that sort of thing. So it didn't say vaginas, but you get it. Yeah. Okay. So listen, I want to talk a little bit about. Well, the the ACOG um, put out a new committee opinion, number seven hundred and forty-five on a uh, mode of term singleton breach delivery. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's replacing number 340, which came out in July of 2006 and was reaffirmed in 2010. So this is a update. It's been eight years since they've updated their breach thing. And the only major change they made to their update was em- more emphasis on external cephalic version, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Because they know that I mean, again, I, I think they understand that breach delivery isn't coming back. And so in order to lower the C-section rate, they wanted to put emphasis on doing external cephalic version. So I wanted to point out some of the highlights of this, some of the lowlights of this, and we can see what happens here, well, okay? I feel sad about your statement. I just want to say that as a low light. Well, uh, let me just read, read the second sentence in this paper, and you'll okay. see what I mean. okay. All right, it just says, there's a trend in the United States to perform cesarean delivery for term singleton fetuses in a breach presentation. The number of practitioners with the skills and experience to perform vaginal breach delivery has decreased. Okay. Now, I wrote a little comment on the side here that that, that is said as if it's a natural occurrence. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. Yeah, there's just, there are less, there are less zebras on the, in the, uh, in the, um, in the, in the veld. You know, I know, I mean, it, it, it's decreased, but it's decreased because of what academia has done. Right. All right. They go on to say, external cephalic version should be attempted, but only in settings in which cesarean delivery services are readily available. Um, I would also add that, that the problem with this, with ECVs being pushed by that is, if we're not teaching people to be experienced breach deliverers anymore, how do we know we're teaching people to be experienced ECV deliverers anymore? And how do you know when your your doctor says I'll attempt an ECV that they really will do a good job? You know, I found that the ones that don't feel comfortable with it don't even offer. Right, but do they offer the women to go elsewhere for an ECV? No. See, that's the issue, and I think yeah. that's what ACOG maybe is trying to push here, giving ACOG the benefit of the doubt, is to try to push the fact that if you are uh, a practitioner who doesn't offer breach delivery and uh, you don't feel comfortable with version, your your obligations more likely to refer this person to somebody to do it. And I think some doctors do refer to the uh, to the maternal fetal medicine doctors who do it. Oh, and I, I think, didn't. I didn't know that they did it. Well, a lot of the MC uh, MFMs do it. Yeah, mm, yeah, okay. I think that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also did I also did some uh, uh, research into this <laughs> recommendation that should be attempted only in settings in which cesarean delivery services are readily available. Because, you know, they hate out-of-hospital anything, right? Right. So I always wonder, when they say that, is that is there evidence to support that? Or is that the old consensus opinion level C type evidence? So what I did is I went to ACOG's... Oops. Hang on a second. ACOG's guideline on ECV and... Talk about small print. I looked, and it says here that the following recommendations are based primarily on consensus and expert opinion called Level C, and that's where it says external cephalic version should be attempted only in settings in which cesarean delivery services are readily available. So there is no data to suggest that that's the case. And I'm saying that partly to defend the fact that I I do versions outside of the hospital setting. Yeah. The hospital setting for versions, um, <coughs> I can't say what the success rates are because I think they vary widely depending on the, t- the talent of the person doing it in the hospital, but it does tend to make people more nervous. The hospital sets up as if something disastrous is going to happen. They have an OR ready. The current trend now is to, uh, we always have an IV. The current trend now is to always give tributylene and uh, almost always give uh, an epidural. And they actually found some statistics that showed that uh, the success rates are significantly higher with women who get an epidural for their version rather than a non-epidural. Again, I don't, I don't know that that's true. I, 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 the data, I guess, uh, if that's what the data says, okay, fine. But when I do a version, 
I can tell by looking at the woman's face how hard I'm pushing. And I can tell that this is way too uncomfortable and I can get some feedback from her. Yeah. If she's numb from the, from the chest or from the belly down and I'm pushing really hard, am I pushing t- too hard? May I hurt the baby without knowing it because the mother can't give me any sort of feedback? feedback? I don't know. That's just a, a hypothesis that I'm throwing out there mm-hmm. for that because uh, we did versions for decades before they decided that epidurals would do it. But now putting it now putting a, a, a version in a hospital setting with an OR crew standing by and an anesthesiologist putting in an epidural and an OB and terbutaline and a nurse and all this stuff, what's the cost of an external cephalic version in a hospital setting? Um, it just seems like it's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal. And what are the downsides to tributaline and epidurals in general, right? Because they all have side effects. So now you've got the procedure itself, and now you've got these other medications that are on that have their own side effects. Yeah, and, well. and, and how many times, and maybe people can, listening can, can nod their heads. If you've worked in labor and delivery, you probably will nod your head to this. How many times, about 20 to 30 minutes after a woman gets an epidural, does her blood pressure drop and the baby's heart rate go down? Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's about the time you'd be doing the, <laughs> the version. So does the heart rate go down because you're pushing too hard, or does the heart rate go down because they have this reflexive thing that happens after epidurals, which a lot of anesthesiologists deny happening, but I've seen it way too many times for it to not be a a valid thing that happens. So again, um, the more you start doing things with these medical interventions, the more, as you just said, the more possible complications you you add. Right. Right, hang on. Let me get this paper clip out of here. All right, let's see what else I said here. Here's a here's a here's a Dr. Stu cynical alert. No, not you. Okay, yes me. <laughs> uh, in the in one of the top paragraphs, says the number of practitioners with the skills and experience to perform vaginal breech delivery has decreased. This isn't repeating the same sentence that was earlier. Okay, then it goes on to say, and this is the one that always drives me crazy. Even in academic medical centers where faculty support for teaching vaginal breech delivery to residents remains high. There may be inefficient volume of vaginal breech deliveries to adequately teach this procedure. Okay, so name me an institution other than a few on one hand where the support for teaching vaginal breech delivery in these residents remains high. And I always wonder, who are they talking about? Who are they talking about? You mean which hospitals? Yeah, where, what academic institutions have, have a thing that remains high? Can you write to them and ask them? Well, it says it says reference two, and I'm looking at reference two. Reference two is teaching vaginal breech delivery and externocephalic version. A survey of faculty attitudes from oh, from the Journal of Reproductive Medicine, two thousand. Oh, <laughs> almost twenty years ago. Right. This is their reference for making that statement. I'm mm-hmm. just like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Couldn't they like, you know, and this is an update. <laughs> this is their this is their update it says see what point. it says right here what yeah. does it say no I don't have mine on update interim update yeah yeah it's update it's in red alright never mind moving on moving All right. on uh, here I got a, I put a G's comment on this one <laughs> it's like <laughs> let's see what I said uh, given the results of this exceptionally large and well controlled oh they're talking about the term breach trial mm-hmm. this is their comment given the results of this exceptionally large and well controlled clinical trial The American College of OBGYN Obstetric Practice in 2001 recommended that planned vaginal delivery of term singleton breach was no longer appropriate. So that was in 2001. They put out a paper just in response to this one paper. All right. Now, they actually have changed. In 2006, after the Promota study came out and after a couple follow-up papers to the term breach trial came out, they did revise that to the statement that says... um, that uh, planned vaginal delivery of term singleton breech fetuses may be reasonable under hospital-specific protocol guidelines. And um, they also said something about the decision regarding the mode of delivery should depend on the experience of the healthcare provider. Cesarean delivery will be the preferred mode of delivery in most physicians because of the diminishing expertise in vaginal breech birth. And that's emphasized, actually, in our, in our documentary 
uh, heads up the disappearing auto breach delivery. I, I remember they have that sentence and then they fade everything out except diminishing expertise. Mm-hmm. Diminishing expertise, right? As if that's something that's just naturally occurring. That's what drives me crazy about the whole thing. Yeah. There's no system to keep training people. In the Netherlands, after the term breach trial, the C-section rate for breach went from 50% to 80% in less than three months. Two months. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So again, that's why when we talked about, the in the last podcast, we talked about the paper that talks about inducing at 39 weeks. If this catches on, it may be something that becomes wildly popular. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, and then what? And then, well, three years from now, we find out, oh, you know, it's not such a great idea. But now that it's widely popular, we're going to do it anyway, because it certainly makes our lives easier as hospitals and doctors to know schedules. And, uh, you know, we can schedule our staffing. We can schedule everything when we know we're going to be inducing people. It's just, right. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. I have a question for you. Yes. Since midwives are still being taught how to deliver breaches, because... We could have a surprise breach Correct. at home and all of that, right? Is that still happening with OB training? Are they taught the skill at all? I mean, because, right? I don't think so. I think maybe they have some demos. Maybe they use some videos or some uh, model trainers like I have. Mm-hmm. But again, I don't have a lot of communication with medical residents. But it doesn't really matter because there's no way that a physician working in a hospital even if a baby comes in with the butt beginning to protrude, you know what they do, don't you? Push them back and yeah, C-section and section them. them right. mm-hmm. Yeah, I just so wondered if they if had they're that even skill, they would let those it. they would let those people deliver. Do you think so? If they had the skill. If if the protocols and the insurance and all of that stuff was was not supportive of that mode, even if they had the skill, don't you think they would still choose C section if that's the like? The safe, quote unquote, If they have the time to do it, I suppose they would. Yeah. But sometimes you just, you, you don't actually don't. Yeah. yeah. That's why I would tell people who have a breech baby, <laughs> who have a doctor, is just labor in the parking lot of the hospital until your baby's starting to come out and then you go in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't hear that here, but right. <laughs> yes, you did. All right. So then I brought uh, eight randomized controlled trials demonstrated that performing external cephalic version led to a st- statistically and clinically significant reduction in cesarean delivery of 43%. So that's good. So you can save some women by turning the babies if their only choice is, by cesare- is to have a cesarean. Are they saying the success of the cephalic version is 43%? No, they said the success rate. Uh, randomized controlled trials found that using an epidural or spinal anesthesia significantly increased the success rate of external cephalic version from 37.6% overall to 59.7%. Now that's a... A statistically significant yes, amount. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I would say that the, the success rate in primips, especially you know healthy fit primips with frank breech babies is very low. So maybe those people might benefit from you from the epidural mode because maybe there's a, maybe there is some advantage to getting total relaxation of that uterus and maybe there's a, the muscles. Yeah, the muscles and mm-hmm. seeing if you can do it cuz I know when those women come to me for consult, I offer, I basically tell them that the chances of success are really low and that it's probably not worth putting the baby under stress or your discomfort for, for doing it because the success rate's so low. But if their only choice was to have a C-section otherwise, then having that particular thing under an epidural makes sense to me. But having a woman who's had three babies before or two babies before and she's now 39 weeks and oops, she's she happens to be breached. Mm-hmm. In a multip, the success rate is you know, is significantly higher than 39.6%. I think their their overall rate uh, includes a very low primip rate because if they're saying it's 37.6 without epidural, uh, that means that, you know, I mean, there are certainly a lot of papers that quote 50, 60% for multips or higher. Do you keep your statistics for your... I don't do enough to make it statistically significant. Mm. I mean, I could look it up. Might be interesting yeah. for we you just to did, keep we did, them. We did one yesterday, though, uh, Tesa and I. Yeah. We did one, yeah. Thirty nine okay. weeks, primip. And it was successful? It went it was just like bloop. Nice. Yep. Nice. Yeah. I still want you to teach me. Okay. Yeah. Well there are very few and far between. You I know, know, you don't but get I really, really, really want to have that skill. I'm gonna have Nicole Morales, who's a midwife in She's great. In um San Diego as well, teach me from a midwifery perspective. But I feel like that's one of the benefits of, of my um 
education is that I got to learn from the obstetrical perspective and from the midwifery perspective. So, yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a, it's a talent that we should have. Um, ACOG's recommendation that these be done only in in hospitals is basically their opinion. Mm -hmm. And of course, all doctors are going to follow that opinion. Not all doctors, but I, I don't, but most doctors will, but that's partly because they don't have a choice, but I don't know, even if I still had hospital privileges now, I'm knowing what I know, I'm thinking that, you know, doing it in their home or doing it in my office, um, is something that is not completely unreasonable. Yeah. You know, I, again, like I I don't necessarily have enough data to reach statistical significance. I know. So I still think it's interesting. Well, speaking of that, speaking of that, I went, I meant to mention this earlier. Uh, the paper that I did on the 50 home breach and 102 home cephalic deliveries mm-hmm. that's been in the works and I've been mentioned it on several podcasts before. Mm-hmm. We finally, Rick Safries and I finally cleared the last hurdle. Nice. So we're waiting to hear this week probably, well, which probably by the time this podcast airs, we'll know that we're accepted for publication, which would be really great because I've been waiting 10 months to get this thing. Yeah, almost 11 months now. That's awesome. And then we did resubmit the uh, case report on the on the twins, which we talked about, where the one twin's head got stuck on the yeah. other twin. And that one, the first place they sent it was it was very well received, but it wasn't rejected because they only do two case reports a month. Mm-hmm. That's the Green Journal, and they received eight or nine that month. I happen to have an email friendship with the ch- editor of the Green Journal, Dr. Nancy Cheshire, and she was very kind to let me know that that the and I got the I got a copy of all the comments of the reviewers, and they were all very positive. Oh, cool. But they didn't <laughs> choose it anyway, which I thought was surprising because it really is an interesting thing that people should know because every now and then you're going to have a, that happen and that first baby almost always dies when there's head entrapment. Mm. And if this maneuver it would work consistently, you might be able to save some lives with this maneuver. Right. Um, but we're, we're submitting it to another place. And this is where it gets really nitpicky because I have... Um, they have really strict rules regarding these submissions. Mm-hmm. For instance, you know, the abstract, at one place, you limited the whole report to 800 words. Well, mine's 1,500 words. Can't do it in 800 words. Another one wanted um, the abstract to only be 150 words. And it's like, I, I, I always want to scratch my head. I go, why? What, what difference does it make? Do you have someone who could edit it for you oh, for it, different well, places like that? Yeah, so I, have, I have Renee who's submitting these uh, you know, she's probably, she's probably pulling her hair out. She's probably shaved her head and moved to a monastery by now. <laughs> Sorry, Renee. <laughs> <laughs> well, well it's, a, it's, it's an annoyance for her and it, because I'm sort of, she's fed up with them and, I, and then I get fed up because I don't understand why these things can happen. Sometimes we submit it with, a, with you know, we've, we submitted the wrong, one time we submitted the wrong, uh, an earlier draft, not the final draft. And so we had to re- take that out and then resubmit and that takes time. Yeah. And I don't want to waste your time, but these things are important to get these things in the world literature where people then can search the literature and search PubMed and find them. Yeah, no, but I love that you're writing. I think it's really important. I hate it. I'm sorry. No, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I like math and I like the statistics and I uh-huh. sort of like looking through my statistics and going, oh, I didn't know my success rate was 82%. Mm. I, didn't, I, you know, I didn't know that. And, yeah. Uh, you know, that, that, that's pretty good, actually. I actually didn't know that you hated writing. I thought you liked it. You oh, like, I don't, writing like, papers. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I don't mind uh, writing just off the top of my head. Oh, yeah. I love that sort of thing. The box that you have to put it in is frustrating. Yes, you, because, you acad- because, because academic papers are really strict about how you have to present the data. And you want to present it so that, that people, well, people will take it seriously, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. You can't just have it all be level C evidence. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I think. This is what Dr. Stu thinks. <laughs> All right, so then here's a follow-up article in the um, Green Journal on the association between attempted external cephalic version and perinatal morbidity and mortality. Because we always hear that, you know, you know there's this big risk of, um, you know, emergencies needed and you can earn, injure a baby or hurt a baby and blah, blah, blah. And I'll just make a long story short. Uh, they, they attempted ECVs at 37 weeks or greater. Um, they had, uh, let's see... 1,263 women were attempted and 509 were successful for a success rate of 40%, 40.3%. And uh, there was a selection bias, in my opinion, because they att- the attempted ECVs were more likely to be non-Hispanic white 
and oliparous and had lower mean body mass indexes. So when you're talking about thin, white, fit women, all right, you're going to have lower success rates. It just, it's, it's a given. And they still had a 40%. What does the white have to do with that? Uh, probably body mass index and stuff tends to be versus Hispanic white. Really? Yeah, I think okay. so. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, I think it's a, a cultural thing. I mean, I mean it just, you know, they're, they're you know, not Hispanic white women are taller. They tend to spend more time in the gym. And, you know, I just, uh, you know, is that, is that biased? Maybe. Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, at least not, at least not on the west side of Los Angeles. Anyway, no, I mean LA for right. sure, but I don't know. See, where did this study came out of? Uh, Chicago. So I don't know. Right. And their conclusion was, just the important part was, that compared with expectant management, an ECV attempt at term is not associated with increased perinatal morbidity or mortality. So we can do those with confidence. So I have a question for you. Yes. Statistical significance. How is that determined? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, hang on a second. I got to read something to you. I didn't know I was going to make him say, oh, my God, four times. Oh, it's pretty yeah. good. Let me see if I can find this. It's in the previous article. Yeah, I'll give you a, I'll give you a complete. Is there a de- definition? Oh, no, I'll give you a complete headache. Because I, I I wanted to share something with you. Well, there are, there are many ways to determine statistical significance. Okay. Um, let's see. Where is that page? Oh, here. Ah. Another drum roll needed. Okay. So, if people want to go do something else in the kitchen right now, I'm going to read this to Bliss. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> statistical analysis. So, this is from the New England Journal article on the 39-week um, thing. But I just... I just started reading this paragraph, and I, I, I literally, I, I couldn't finish it, okay? And, and this is why the average person can't really interpret a paper, and the average scientist can't interpret a paper, because unless you're, unless you're a researcher, you don't even understand what they're talking about. It's like lawyers in a con, in reading a, like a real estate contract or something that's like that. that's on purpose. Right. Yeah. Analysis were performed according to the intention to treat principle. John's going to the kitchen, by the way. Yes, bye, John. <laughs> we compared continuous variables using the Wilcoxon signed rank test and categorical variables using the chi-square and Fisher's exact tests. A multinomial outcome was compared with the use of multinomial logistic regression. Time variables measured in days were categorized and compared with the Cochrane-Armitage trend test. We used the group sequential method, sequential method to control the type 1 error with the land demurs characterization of the O'Brien-Fleming boundary, one interim analysis was performed. In the final analysis of the primary outcome, a two-tailed p-value of less than 0.046 was considered to indicate statistical significance. Yeah, I don't understand. Should I not I hope that, that I question? hope people at home are either like <laughs> saying, what is Fishbein doing? Or they're cracking up completely. <laughs> All right. And if there's anybody out there that understood... You know, I've heard of the chi-square test, I think, and I've heard of a few of those things. But, but, and, and by the way, there's a whole other paragraph with more stuff. Mm. But I, you asked me about statistical significance, and I just, because I had just read that this morning, and I, and I like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, oh, my so God. So, what, what it, it, you know, the, you need numbers. You need certain numbers. And there's ways to calculate how many num- numbers. No. There's okay. ways to calculate how many numbers you need to be able to make a statistical significant argument. Okay. Right? That's why they used to, they had to get 6,000 people in that other study. 3,000 in each group of the induction versus the, the expected management. Mm-hmm. They had to interview, they interviewed 44,000 people. The, uh, some were excluded, like 23,000 or 30, 20, almost 30,000 people were probably inc- uh, met eligibility, but only six, they, they had to go through all those to find 6,000 people willing to be in the study. Mm. But they knew they needed a number of 6,000. So that's how they did it. And, they, and there's ways to calculate that. And it's well beyond my head. Right over it. So on the podcast, have you talked about um, vaccinations and pregnancy yet? I think we've talked about it a couple of times. Do you, you have. Do you want to talk about it briefly right now? No. I, I thought if we haven't talked about it, maybe we could do that on the well, next Well, which podcast. vaccinations are you talking about? Well, um, the, the two the that we... T-DAT. And the flu? Yeah. I mean, flu, I, I, feel, I feel okay about talking about because I think that, you know the flu shot in general is kind of ridiculous because it changes from 
um, season to season, and they're really like the percentages of the times that it's effective is not great, and it pe- makes people feel sick anyways. A lot of people reacted. A lot of yeah. people react to the flu. I mean, but, yeah. but the Tdap yeah. in particular, um, I, I wanted to to maybe look it up so that I was coming from a really um, informed place. But when I had my assistant Jessica looking it up for me, um, she was saying that the CDC recommendation was on a study that was done on like 42 people or 38 people. It was like, so that doesn't there's seem no, to there's be... No evidence, there's, no ev- there's no studies that show the efficacy or safety of, of vaccines in pregnancy. There's, there's no study shows that it's safe. Why is it okay for CDC to make these recommendations then? Just like they did with uh, the placenta encapsulation with the GBS, one case. It wasn't even a study. It was one person that Be- they because, suspected. Because here's the question that, yeah, that I, again, it's, my, it's, it's Dr. Stu's cynical moment. All right. Who works for the CDC? Who works for them? I don't know. A lot of people that work in the CDC are ex-pharmaceutical hmm. people. And what do the people in the CDC do when they retire from the CDC? I don't know. <laughs> they go work for pharmaceutical companies. Mm. Okay, it's a so swamp. It's, it's intertwined. A sw- it's a swamp. Mm-hmm. So why do they do that? I think there's a, fi- a vested financial under the uh, interest in in making those statements. It can't be because it's safety because they haven't proven safety. And I'll tell you with the Tdap shot. All right, um, it's a class C. Well, and not only that, but but not only way. that, we're talking about prote- the the main reason you give the Tdap shot is because you can't give pertussis by itself. Uh-huh. All right. We're not worried about diphtheria. We're not worried about tetanus. Okay, we're worried about pertussis. Why can't you give it by itself? Because the manufacturing companies don't make it by itself. Yeah, not because it's not possible. No, no, they stopped making it by. Yeah. That's why measles, mumps, and rubella are all t- uh, combined now. Right. They used to have separate ones. You could pick and choose. Right. Now you have to get all three at the same time, which mm-hmm. is a problem, especially in the little black kids and stuff like that, where there's, you know, the, the CDC denies that too. Right. Uh, Sanjay Gupta on TV says that everything's perfectly safe and. You know, I'd love to see him just vaccinate his kids on TV. I think it'd be great. <laughs> but we digress. So the Tdap shot was an interesting thing because it's about pertussis that people are worried about. And the, I think a baby gets its first newborn pertussis shot at three months, I think. Two. Is it two From months? From my studies. Okay. They can't do so it two months. two months. So you're giving a shot to a pregnant woman who's got a developing fetus in her to cover that period of time from the time the baby's born until two months when the baby gets its first vaccine. Right. All right. Mm-hmm. So the question is, Why? So I, being me, sort of did research like you had your partner do research. And what I did was I looked at how many cases of pertussis were, were fatal or you know, were, were fatal in the, in the first year of life in the United States. Whooping cough. Right? Whooping cough yeah. is pertussis, yeah. okay? And I looked and I found data from 2014 that said there were 30 cases of whooping cough that caused uh, deaths in the United States. All right, so let's analyze that. We don't know how many of those 30 cases were vaccinated. We don't know how many were not vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Okay. We don't know how many cases were those cases, the kids were immunocompromised or had other problems. We just know that there were 30 deaths. All right. Now, we know that approximately 4 million babies are born every year. Okay. So if 30 died in a year, we know that the rate of death is, is th- 3 per 400,000 or 1 in, 1 in 133,000. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're going to vaccinate with a vaccine that hasn't been proved to be safe in pregnancy, all pregnant women, to possibly prevent one baby in 133,000 from getting whooping cough and dying. Now, the truth is, is that that number is probably much lower than that because we're saying of those 30, we don't know how many of those babies, like I said, had other problems Mm -hmm. and how many of those babies didn't get vaccinated at two months or vaccinated at six months or whatever the booster shot program is for that so it's a ridiculously small number and yet we're going to expose all pregnant women in the united states to something that's never been proven to be safe for a very small benefit now if you explain that if you if you take acog's recommendation of giving really good informed consent for for um breech vaginal delivery okay not for cesarean delivery we didn't even get to that we we didn't even talk about their recommendation now is that that consent uh, for breach should be very, very, very detailed and informed. But they don't say anywhere in there that she should get very, very detailed and informed consent about cesarean section, both short and long term. It's not in their paper. Mm-hmm. But what they recommend for this is that if you, gave, if you gave really informed consent to these women and said, the chance of your baby getting dying from whooping cough is about one in uh, 200,000, okay? 
we, we want to give you a shot to prevent that, but we don't know that the shot's safe. How many women are going to take it? And yet, my own colleagues in my office, some of them, the younger ones, give, give, offer Tdap and sort of recommend it to every single pregnant woman that comes through their office. Do you have this conversation with them? I've had a conversation with them. And they still do? Yeah. 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 Because they, they're, they're following the guidelines. They don't want to be outside the guidelines. Yeah. And, they, and, and I say, and they don't have the, and the uh, bottom line is, Bliss, is they don't have don't the time the to sit down and have the conversation like you or I have in our hour-long prenatal visits. They have six-minute prenatal visits, eight-minute prenatal visits. Yeah, you but you can't, you can't justify not being safe because they can. you don't have time. Sure they can. But that's not their justification. It's being inside of the standard of care. Is That's what it is. They don't want to be outside of the standard of care. The standard of care would imply giving informed consent, actually. Because well, ACOG has very strict things about informed consent true, and, co- and coercion, right? Yeah. Not it's, not, it's not happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's really not happening at all. But it's happening here <laughs> on Dr. Steve's <laughs> podcast, which is where people come to get information that they might not get anywhere else. Right? you know what would be cool if we did a podcast of you giving uh, a consult sometime that'd be kind of cool just record it yeah that'd be pretty cool I mean that's what you said people come here to get informed consent it would save you a lot of time why? Because <laughs> you wouldn't have to come. That you wouldn't have to come record me. I would come because I'd pipe in and. Laugh. Oh, you mean you come to a consult? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that that's not a bad idea. You, yeah. you still want to do the Facebook Live thing, which I sort know. of fell apart. Well. And then we have uh, we have Scott the producer. Apart. We have Scott the producer of this Birth at Home movie in October, right? He's yeah, gonna he's going to come. And I think he's going to be here in a couple of weeks. Scott, you've been so uh, patient, persistent with us. Thank per- you. Persistent for that. and patient, right? <laughs> yeah, well, we're we're very unreliable when it comes to scheduling our <laughs> podcast events. We're, we're nice. But not very reliable. Yeah. Anyway, thanks again for be, for listening, everybody. We really, really appreciate you listening and sharing and talking to everybody about our podcast. We love your mail. Please. So write us. AskDrStew at gmail.com. This has been Podcast 132. See you next time. Bye-bye.